Good morning. Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Almighty God, you who know all things and have set the universe in motion, grant us your wisdom that as we search for answers to our questions, we would discover your truth for our lives. We long for your wisdom that leads not to power or fortune, but the wisdom that leads to faith and love. Give us the confidence to see your will in the midst of mystery. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. This morning's scripture is taken from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man man who was blind from birth. Jesus' disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned so that he was born blind, this man or his parents? Jesus answered, neither he nor his parents. This happened so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. While it's daytime, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said this, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and smeared the mud on the man's eyes. Jesus said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went away and washed. When he returned, he could see. The word of God for the people of God. So, um, not sure if I drew the short straw or if this is just the joy of being a senior pastor. No laughter, okay. I'm just gonna be honest here. A little bit of laughter before we get into the mud is not gonna hurt. So I strongly believe that there are two kinds of people in the world. And if you live at my house, you hear this all the time. It doesn't matter what season we're in. I can divide the world into two camps at any time. We're coming up on Thanksgiving, right? So Thanksgiving, let's do Halloween first. We're coming up on Halloween. There's two kinds of people in the world. There are people who go out for Halloween because of the costumes and there are people who go out to Uh, for Halloween because their kids bring home candy and then they go to sleep and don't guard it. (laughs) There's two types of people in the world. You think about Thanksgiving, right? There are people who show up to Thanksgiving dinner because of the turkey and then there are the smart people who show up because of the sides. (laughs) Two kinds of people in the world. Can you agree with me here? Two kinds of people in the world. Um, Super Bowl. You watch the Super Bowl. Half the world watches the Super Bowl for the game. The other half watches it for the commercials. You're with me. That's great. Thank you. Uh, yeah, two kinds of people in the world. And I believe that there are two kinds of people in the world when it comes to questions. Some people ask questions that are about pursuing fact and truth. I get the impression that around here with so many engineers that this is a, a love language for y'all, right? You can ask a question that has a definable answer. What is two plus two? Four. Why is it that things that go up must come down? Gravity, right? We can answer these questions all day long. They are questions that are seeking truth or fact. 
Now, there is a different kind of person who asks questions that I like to say are pot-stirring questions. These are folk who know clearly the answer, but they're going to ask you the question anyway, just to see you squirm. Now, the kind of folk who ask these questions, they can be older adults who ask questions. They can be teenagers who ask their parents. These are they're pot-stirring questions. Are you familiar with these people at all, right? These are folk who have already memorized what the Old Testament and the New Testament said, but while sitting in a seminary class, they will gladly ask the systematic theologian why he's violating scripture in the process of teaching his class, right? I mean, these are pot-stirring questions. You're not going to laugh on that one. Okay. Some of these pot-stirring questions are kind of like um, the kid who asked me one time, does God have a beard? I got nothing. Maybe, depends on if he shaves, right? I mean, like, there's not a good one there. Um, or pot-stirring questions are kind of like, what does blue smell like? Yeah, I got nothing, right? Nothing. I mean, I've tried smelling the blue M&Ms and there's no scent. Before long, they'll make pumpkin spice M&Ms. Oh, wait, they did. <laughs> Two kinds of questions. When we look at our scripture today, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees are asking Jesus one of those questions that's not about searching out fact or truth. They are trying to catch Jesus in between two possibilities with his particular circumstance that he's in. Two kinds of questions in the world. Now, I do have to be a little bit humorous um, about, uh, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? I find this interesting that we ask that question, why do bad things happen to good people? I find it far more alarming that good things happen to bad people. Can I get an amen? I mean, it's one thing that a hurricane hits people that we love, but why in the world do bad people win the lottery? I mean, I think if I had only three questions to ask God when I get to heaven, that's one of them. Why do good things happen to bad people? Now, um, I've often thought that uh, if we were to ask this question or maybe ask what God thinks about in terms of this question, that maybe when the Trinity gets together and they poll about what's the most popular topic for the Trinity to talk about amongst themselves, I'm not so sure it's gonna be why bad things happen to good people, but it may be why do people do bad things? You know, it's interesting that we often, in the midst of tragedy, want to absolve ourselves of any uh, role that we might play, and immediately everything goes to God. Why do bad things happen to good people? We look at our scripture today. The story is about um, Jesus healing a, a man who's been blind since birth. Um, now, um, blind since birth. Now, there are a lot of different stories about Jesus healing blind men. Um, there's actually uh, four uh, stories. Um, I've listed them in your bulletin in the notes. Um, why do blind, uh, how do blind men get healed? Well, there's, you, oh, you're so wonderful. You looked for it. That's great. Um, you don't have to look, um, look them up now, but it's great reading for the rest of the week. So there's four ways that Jesus heals blind men. One is just by touch, right? Jesus touches the blind man and he has his sight restored. 
There's an additional story where Jesus uh, touches, um, doesn't touch the blind man, but the blind, Jesus says that his faith makes him whole, right? Now there's um, a third one. Uh, it didn't take just touch, but for this blind man, it also took Jesus spitting into his hand and using the spit as well to heal the man of his blindness. And then lastly, we've got the fourth one, um, where it's, it's not just touch and it's um, uh, not just spit. It takes a little bit of mud and spit together, right? Could you imagine these four men getting together and talking about how Jesus healed them, right? Uh, and one says, he just, he just touched me and I was made whole. And the other one said, he didn't have to touch me at all. I guess I'm that cool. And there's another guy that said, wow, it's a touch plus spit. And then you got our guy from John. He's like, wow, not only did it take touch and spit, but I had to have mud splattered on me as well before I was made whole. Seems like to me that this might be the first meeting of different denominations in the church. <laughs> so, so do I have to do that, you know, the early church is divided between spitties and non-spitties, muddies and non-muddies, touchies and non-touchies, or is that too far? It's probably too far, sorry. Our scripture passage, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees asked Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Who sinned? Now you might say, well, that's a really strange question to ask Jesus, but the Pharisees are again stirring the pot, and it's one of those questions that can't really be answered well. Um, not because it's some great mystery and we don't know the answer, but because uh, in the Mosaic tradition in Exodus, there's one answer given in the Old Testament. And in the prophetic tradition in Ezekiel, uh, another answer is given. In fact, in Exodus uh, chapter 20, verse 5, um, in Moses' telling of the law, um, it, it says that um, the sins of the father and the mother will be... Um, um, will be, their iniquity will be perpetuated onto the generations of their children, so they will be punished for the sins of their fathers and to third and fourth generation. So one answer to why is this man uh, born blind uh, would be because his parents sinned. But the other answer that is equally right comes from the prophetic tradition, Ezekiel, uh, chapter 18, verse 20. And in that um, uh, scripture verse, you can look it up, um, in Ezekiel 18, 20, it says that no mother or father will be punished for the sins of their children. And no child will be punished uh, for the sins of their mother and father. Do, do you see that what the Pharisees have done is have laid a trap for Jesus and said, we're just waiting for you to answer one way or the other against the law or the prophets and then we'll run you um, up on a trial and we'll have you crucified and we'll be done with you. So, so the Pharisees and Sadducees here are trying to stump Jesus in the midst of the question. And what I love about what Jesus does is he doesn't play into their hand. I mean, sure, he could have answered either way, but instead what he says is that neither the parents nor this man have sent, but this man has been born with blindness so that the works of God could be manifested in him. Well, that's a powerful statement, right? Jesus sidesteps the um, accusation of who sinned, which let's be really serious here. Um, if the man was born blind and we go with the idea that it's his sin, so now we're going to make an argument that um, uh, unborn babies can sin, uh, 
wow. Right now, I gotta be honest, I've heard, uh, especially heard Amy when she was carrying Grace, you know, three in the morning when little cute, you know, uh, peanut Grace steps on her bladder. She said some words, but I don't think they were, you know, I don't think that Grace was sinning, right? No laughter there, okay. And though our parents um, do a lot of good and a lot of not good, but are we really gonna say that the sins that someone else commits are gonna be perpetuated on their generations for three and four to follow? So instead of playing into the hand of who's responsible, whose sin created this tragedy, what Jesus does is say, it's for the purpose of allowing uh, the works of God to be manifested in this man's life. I know that's really hard. I mean, we really want to uh, play into survivor's guilt. Uh, um, I know that in our community, the worst things did not happen. I mean, I have to remind myself that um, though we have 18, 19, 20 or so families here in the church that had um, more than a foot of water in their home, um, the truth of the matter is that Hurricane Harvey came on shore a number of miles south of here. And then um, not just a, a foot of water, but like whole homes just washed away with the storm surge. It's easy for us to feel like the worst things happened here. And it might be easy in the midst of survivor's guilt for us to say, why me? Why them and, and not me? Why? And I know that the floodwaters were quite systematic, and so it's not that one house was taken and one house wasn't. But still, you could play that game. You could wonder. You could say, um, what if? But playing that game of what if is really hard. Because the one thing that we know is how well we don't measure up to God's expectations. And if our house had no water in it, it makes us wonder, do we, do we not clearly understand what God's expectations are? And then we think about the folk who did have water, and we know how kind and generous and wonderful they are, and we can't fathom that God would punish them. You see, when we get sucked into survivor's guilt, we get sucked into trying to figure out the order and method for why this happened. I heard it said really well on the morning news um, a couple of days ago. Uh, this one woman, um, she, it was on the west side of Houston, um, and she had survivor's guilt, and she had done the kind of overachiever, help her neighbors kind of a thing. And there um, in the camera shot with her was um, her neighbor and best friend uh, who had like two feet of water in her house. And, and the woman um, who had no water was, um, was talking about how, how guilty she felt. And, and how she just had a hard time understanding it. And the woman, if you'll allow me to use the phrase that had water in her home, who is a victim of the flood, victim is the word I'm asking you to let me use. She turns to her friend and says, if not for you, where would I have slept the last week? If not for you, for people who had no water in their homes, who would have come to muck out my house? No one who has to muck out their own house goes to someone else's place to work there. And she says, if it weren't for you survivors, where would us victims be? I think it's a powerful, powerful word for us to hear. You know, um, in our world, we usually think about things in terms of individualism. We think about our sin being our punishment. We think about um, our consequences. 
When we look at the Old Testament tradition, we look at Moses and the Israelites as they travel through um, uh, the desert um, for 40 years, headed towards the promised land. You know how they did forgiveness of sin in those days. It wasn't everybody come down and get your individual cup of juice and your little bit of bread and you kneel at the altar rail. No, they would gather together as a whole community on a particular day and all of the community would um, confess their sins in the presence of the priest. And the priest would then go and take uh, those confessions to a goat and would bless the goat by thereby transferring all of those sins onto the goat. And the goat would be released into the wilderness of, wait for it, sin. Yes. You want to know where we get the idea of scapegoating? There it is. Notice that forgiveness of sins in that day and time was a communal experience, not an individualized one. So it's interesting that we think about um, storms and why me and why not me in such individualized ways. Survivor's guilt is real, and it's easy to wonder why do bad things happen to good people, especially when those good people are our neighbors. C.S. Lewis, if you want to read a little bit more about um, this train of thought, C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says that pain is something that has to be addressed. That pain is almost impossible to ignore. That pain takes up so much of your consciousness and your experience that it's hard to do anything else. Um, having had three major abdominal surgeries I've all, over the last uh, 20 years, I've gotten a kick out of folk who will come up and say, oh wow, um, abdominal pain, that's nothing. You gotta have head surgery for real pain said by the person who had brain surgery. Um, or, you know, somebody had um, shoulder, well, you haven't, you know, really experienced pain until you've had shoulder, you know, or, or knee or, or, or foot, right? I, I just want to, you know, cut clean with you. Um, minor surgery is surgery performed on somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> Painless surgery, that's surgery done on you, not on me. That if it's my pain, if it's your pain, it's overwhelming. The problem of pain is that it has to be adjust, addressed. C.S. Lewis went on to say that God whispers in our pleasures, God speaks in our conscience, and that God shouts in our pain. Now, I'm not going to say that God gives us pain for the purpose of growing us, but it's an interesting communal experience. Uh, um, I found it interesting, go with me for a little bit here. Um, in the fall, um, you know, had surgery, um, before surgery, um, I had a very sweet church leader come and ask me, would you like a prayer pager? And I found the question odd. And I waited and I said, yes. And you could see like the release of anxiety and worry um, kind of come away from this volunteer. And I said, why were you worried? that I would say no? And she said, well, not every pastor wants to be prayed for. And I thought, what kind of pastors have y'all had? <laughs> I, I, I need copious amounts of prayer. Just ask Amy, right? <laughs> and then another volunteer came along and had a prayer shawl and said, would you like to have a prayer shawl that you can take with you to the hospital room? It, 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 it will remind you that we are praying regularly for you. And I thought, I've done this, I, 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 I can see a pattern. And I said, yes. And they said, shoo. And I thought, really? And then another volunteer came and said, would you like to have meals brought out to your house? 
And, and, I, and I, again, I'm a simple man, but I can spot a, a, a pattern when it's coming. And I said, yes. And they went, shoo. And what came to my realization was that oftentimes our community has been so self-sufficient that we have pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, that we have mucked out our houses, that we have called the pastor after we've had cardiac surgery, that we have done it all very well on our own and we don't need help from anyone and it's killing us. It's killing us because we weren't meant to do all of this by ourselves and it's killing us because there are those of us out there with survivor's guilt who are just dying to help but don't know how. What's a powerful thing now, some of you really want me to address, before I close, what happens, what, what do you say, preacher, if the out-of-the-ballpark, home-run, medical miracle doesn't come when I pray for it, right? How, how, do, you, how do you slice that one, preacher? One person gets the miracle, the other person doesn't. I, I want to say that there are two kinds of miracles in the world. That yeah, we pray regularly for the out of the ballpark home run miracle that is so miraculous and amazing that medical practitioners cannot explain how the healing happened. But I wanna say that it is just as powerful a gift of a miracle for God to give someone who is um, shackled with a chronic disease, the ability to live under that disease with the fruits of the Spirit, joy, patience, peace, compassion, kindness, self-control. Now true, everybody likes the fireworks at the 4th of July, and an out-of-the-ballpark miracle, I mean, that's a crowd-pleaser, that's amazing, right? But think about those people you've known who under the weight of something unbelievable, in the midst of of a situation they cannot control. God gifted them with the ability to live in that chronic condition with such peace and wisdom that they were a witness to others. I would say that's a miracle of God as well. And so we're brought back to the realization that if Jesus didn't take time to assign responsibility for whose sin caused the tragedy, then maybe Pat Robertson isn't just wrong, but he's an idiot. Excuse me, I'm sorry. That was an addition to my script. Because at Katrina and Rita, when it hit New Orleans, what did he say? He says, oh, New Orleans is just a, a slum of sin. That's why God sent the hurricane there. If Jesus didn't take time to say who was responsible, but instead said that this man was born blind so that the works of God could be manifested in him. How much more true is it that when we ask for help in the midst of tragedy, that we're inviting an opportunity for our neighbors to care for us? And by doing so, allowing the works of God to be manifest in our community. Friends, sometimes it's just as simple as Mr. Rogers said. In the midst of crisis and tragedy, don't pay attention to the people running away in terror. 
pay attention to the people who run towards the need and make a difference. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.